0: Welcome to At Home and Abroad with Harrison Walker. Join us each week as we explore the far reaches of the globe in search of unique characters and stories to share. Reach beyond your front door as we uncover new perspectives, intriguing ideas, and lessons learned over time. Let's jump in. Like many of us, Christine
1: Lewis of Victoria, Canada, wanted to know more about her family history. Little did she know what her genealogical search would soon uncover. According to Lewis, she knew that her grandfather was British, but she knew little else. In 2010, after being offered some additional information from a family member, Christine began researching in earnest. She quickly discovered that generations of her family had moved from the UK to Wales and Ireland before settling in Ontario, Canada. To her surprise, Christine Lewis learned that she was descended from Edward Seymour, the first Duke of Somerset, and the eldest surviving brother of Jane Seymour. He was Christine's 14th great-grandfather. Jane Seymour was the wife of King Henry VIII and the mother of the future King Edward VI, making him her cousin many times removed. Christine had always been interested in the monarchy as well as Tudor history, so this ancestral discovery was truly a remarkable one. She said, my own grandfather sadly passed before I could share this
0: information with him, but I know he would have been as blown away as I am. Well, that was a pretty remarkable discovery. I spend quite a bit of time searching my own genealogy, but I have yet to find any Anything as exciting as this. I know. I've even gone
1: back to about the 1500s on one branch of my tree, but I haven't turned up any connection to royalty yet, Walker. Wouldn't that be so cool, though? I know. I'm really disappointed. But being the
0: history buffs that we are, it would be so awesome. Well, like Christine Lewis, many people are interested in learning more about their family trees, and surprisingly, many people in Great Britain are discovering that they do have royal roots. Oh, really? Mm-hmm, apparently so. Cherry King, professor of genetics at the University of Leicester and a presenter on Two's DNA Family Secrets, stated that millions of people living today are related to Richard III's immediate family. Wow, I guess this makes sense if you think about how many generations back we're talking about. There must be a lot of common and connections. Right. Yeah. In a BBC News article, Turi notes that there are many overlapping family trees. She revealed that a genealogy study has indicated that a child born in the mid-20th century England who could trace her ancestry back to the early 13th century in England would show 80% of that population in their family tree. Wow, I guess that would be me then. Yes, and you are likely to be related to a royal if you can trace your family tree back to the Middle Ages. Wow. Mm-hmm. She said that we're reliant on the survival of records, and notably the Brits have done a good job at keeping them. They sure have.
1: Well, though I have no royalty in my bloodlines that at least I've come across, I am fascinated with the concept of royalty. What is it? that makes it so captivating.
0: Well, I imagine it started with childhood tales that were filled with castles and palaces, princes and princesses. Yeah, probably. And of course, here in Canada, we
1: do have close ties to the British monarchy Mm. being one of the 15 Commonwealth realms, which
0: King Charles reigns over. Well, putting our history and childhood fantasies aside, though, the British royal family appear to lead a charmed and rarefied life. Mm -hmm. It's the pomp and circumstance of the palaces, the country estates, the gowns and crowns, Elegant events. It's all a window into a bit of an opulent world. It sure is. The Royals
1: are very similar to celebrities of Mm. today, right? They are people living lives that we've been socialized to desire. In a Time magazine article, Dr. Frank Farley, a professor and psychologist at Temple University and formerly the president of the American Psychologist Association, says, We all have dreams of wealth and fame and happiness and style and social influence and so on, which starts early with fairy tales and the way we raise our kids. We
0: put them on a pedestal to be adored.
1: Yeah, I agree. And then there are some whose preoccupation with celebrities goes a bit beyond what would be considered a healthy interest,
0: right? Yeah, I can see how that could happen. We're inundated with social media coverage of the best of their lives all the time. Yeah, and this is especially true in regards to the British royal family. Dr.
1: Farley explains that it's alluring to follow a family that makes things look so easy. He noted, life is hard and becoming a success is difficult. So look at these people. They inherited wealth and social influence and style and fame. And they live this fairy tale life in castles, all the stuff that we grow up on. But really at the heart of it, they are just people. And there are some serious drawbacks to being royal. I would think so. We're excited to introduce Richard Fitzwilliams, a public relations consultant, a brilliant film critic, and a renowned royal commentator who has been featured often on television and radio around the world. Welcome to At Home and Abroad, Richard.
2: It's a great pleasure to be on.
1: So the past 12 months have been like no other in recent memory for the British royal family. In fact, we have just observed the first anniversary of the Queen's death on September 8th. What are your impressions of King Charles's first steps as sovereign?
2: I think, obviously, every monarch puts their own stamp on their reign, Mm -hmm. so far as King Charles is concerned so far, certainly, it is continuity. And I think you would expect that because, obviously, the Queen was totally unique. One thinks of the tribute paid to George VI when he died. The sunset of his death altered the whole world's sky. And in that sense, the Queen was a Truly international figure, but someone who was symbolic of national unity like no other, and also the continuity of a reign of over 70 years. So, obviously, this was going to be very different, and obviously, everybody knew that this was it would happen, but we all hoped that it wouldn't happen for quite some time. I mean, the Queen had obviously been frail, but she went as she would have wished, receiving her last prime minister at trust, just the day before she died. And I think uh, King Charles, from the very beginning, showing very clearly in that uh, speech to the nation that he understood what the job involved to be encouraged, to uh, be advised, to warn, but obviously not a role that in any sense was an activist. I mean, I think one has to bear in mind, obviously, that it's rather like the Duke of Edinburgh, Uh, Prince Philip's work, creating his own role, because there wasn't him. We haven't a written constitution, so obviously as Prince of Wales I think that uh, Charles did brilliantly because the Prince's Trust was something that was unique and he didn't Uh, work for so many different charities and, of course, so uh, importantly these days for the environment, as everybody Mm -hmm. knows. But this is a very different job. And obviously the red boxes, the interviews with the prime minister, the opening of parliament, all these formal things. I mean, part and parcel of this is being a figure of national unity above party politics, and I think he's done well, I think that the consistency and the continuity are very important. I think mm-hmm. that uh, he dealt, for example, with the issue of councillors of state, because if he was abroad or incapacitated, there have to be um, members of the royal family to stand in for him, and this previously hadn't been attended to. Also, uh, no question that he will be travelling abroad a great deal more, I think, but the trip to Germany was a royal visit at its finest because he speaks German and addressing the Bundestag. It was a historic moment, and especially thinking back to the war, and I mean, thinking back to uh, uh, George VI, his grandfather, I mean, truly remarkable, this. uh, And it shows also what monarchy can offer, the continuity, but also, of course, in the first year, there's been a lot of ceremonial the funeral of the Queen, which I think was magnificent and deeply moving, and the world watched, and also the coronation. And I think that, again, something that was very difficult to carry off with. You know, the Queen coming to the throne in 1953, well, sorry, the no, Queen coming to the throne in 1952 and being crowned the year after. I mean, someone who was. In her 20s, clearly, King Charles, Queen Camilla in their 70s. I mean, it's it's very different, and it's mm-hmm. a different uh, sort of environment, too, because the Queen never gave an interview to camera. And, of course, uh, um, we didn't know her views on a whole variety of issues, which was very, very useful then. But looking at it now, I think that... In the first year, I think he's tackled, for example, uh, so far as he possibly could, with a memoir like Spare, which uh, Harry so ill advisedly wrote, something that was deliberately designed to cause trouble, which it did.
1: Which it did. Yeah, we'll get into that, Richard, definitely.
2: But to evict the Sussexes from Frogmore Cottage, I think that was a very sensible move. So Mm -hmm. I think overall the first year, I think, has gone well. I think that he has to come to terms with several areas, for example, the so-called slimline monarchy. I mean, four royal, four members of the royal family are under 70. Now, I mean, if you are going to have, well, it used to be 10 years ago, it used to be 4,000 engagements a year. Now, it's uh, subsequently, it became roughly 3,000. Now, the palace are Reviewing patronages, but what we want to know, obviously, is will there be any younger members of the royal family? I mean, it's most unlikely Princess Beatrice or Eugenie would be involved because of uh, Andrew being in disgrace, and that is a permanent situation. But Lady Louise Windsor, for example, is that a possibility one day? Because if not, the numbers of engagements that the royal family undertake will get a great deal fewer. So the so-called slimline monarchy, Princess Anne gave a very interesting interview recently, and she was saying uh, that she didn't think that this was a good idea now, certainly to slim it down further.
1: Right, absolutely. Because there's a great importance in having those connections with the public in the form of these engagements over time. So having fewer of them may not serve the monarchy best.
2: I quite agree. And I think there is another difficulty. And this is linked, of course, and with the Sussexes when we discuss them. But it is a problem uh, because it's now been consistent for a while. And that is between 18 and 24 most people now support a republic now that oh. was never the case before indeed just 10 years ago i mean it would have been unthinkable and the mm-hmm. reason this has happened is definitely the sussex is uh, i mean it's obviously tied into the cost of living crisis and other problems but i mean specifically it's happened since the oprah interview
1: mm-hmm. and they have definitely rocked the boat and i cannot wait to to get into that with you i just want to mention first though and this does relate to the popularity of the british royal family the monarchy worldwide prince william was recently voted the most popular public figure by gallup polls in the united states And the king himself was in fourth place. So clearly still very popular, regardless of what the Duke and Duchess of Sussex have been up to. Do you think that the British public view the royals as favorably as perhaps in North America?
2: Well, firstly, I think that Gallup poll was very important, and I think it's bad news for the Sussexes because there were two polls Newsweek quoted which showed that their popularity in the States had plummeted. Uh, I think it's uh, wonderful. I think also it's an example, I mean, the links with the Commonwealth and the links with countries abroad, and most particularly, of course, the, the United States. This is very, very important. I mean, the... Monarchy And it's the trips abroad and the charitable work that it does and also the profile that it has. I mean, no other institution except for the American presidency could, I think, possibly compete. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I think that the British public. I mean, certainly the older, it's always been the case, the older you get, the more traditional you are, the more conservative, just generally. And uh, yes, I mean, the monarchy still scores in the most recent polls over 60%. It's just that it used to be quite uh, well over 70%. And it's a pity that you've had that drop and also amongst the young. So, you know, this, this does raise questions, because it's very difficult to change things drastically. It depends what people want, want changed, because a lot of tradition, of the ceremonial, for example, no other country does it as well, and no other country would have over 200 countries represented at the coronation. Um, in fact, no other European country has a coronation, and also the the popularity of the queen. I mean, this was something that was obviously completely unique, and she was the best known head of state, of course, in the world.
1: She she certainly was, and she was an inspiration to so many, and just as a a uh, sort of a quirky little side note: My youngest child, who is uh, a sixteen-year-old boy, has a portrait of the Queen above his bed in Toronto, Canada. So that's how far her reach can extend, uh, you know, even into the hearts of the young. But we were talking; we did touch a little bit upon Harry and Meghan, the Duke and Duchess of of Sussex, and they have stirred the pot quite a bit. With the release, as you mentioned, of Harry's book Spare, the appearance on Oprah, and many other public exposés on life behind the palace walls, how irreparable do you see this rift with the family itself?
2: I think that at the moment, the rift is tremendously wide. We know that the once inseparable, or supposedly we read in Spare, a great deal that we didn't know before. Um, the brothers were uh, not speaking at the moment, and indeed, of course, uh, King Charles has evicted the Sussexes uh, from Frogmore Cottage, which is their, well, was their base in Britain. I mean, that was after attacks of the royal family on Spare, and particularly, it's thought, um, Harry labelling Queen Camilla as dangerous. The Sussexes believe that the palace is the repository of the dark arts. Constantly, Harry refers to this. There's little doubt also, of course, as you know, and he's been recently the first royal since 1891 to appear in the witness box. Uh, He also believes something similar to the press. There's no doubt at all that with several cases pending... Uh, this might be historic if he won, uh, for example, against the Mirror Group newspapers. I mean, one has to say that. Uh, but there is also no doubt that Sussex is unpredictable. It's a long time since they have managed to, uh, indeed, if they ever did, uh, cooperate with palace officials when it comes to diaries and when it comes to events and so forth. It What we've seen is something completely ruthless. Oprah was... The Queen's report to Oprah that some recollections may vary was all she could say in the circumstances. But nonetheless, the facts were that the charges made against them was pretty well unanswerable because you couldn't go point by point down or you would give more mileage to them. And also they threatened to release more footage. It was quite impossible to deal with it. And they know that the royals can very, very sensibly Keep quiet and carry on is all you can do because in the era not only of 24-hour news but also, of course, the quite extraordinary way social media just spreads news, Mm -hmm. Uh, the only thing you can do to dampen a story down is is no comment unless you have a specific rebuttal point by point of that story. And in the case of the Sussexes, they were complaining that the palace didn't protect them from the press. It wouldn't have been possible. I mean, you had the, you had various newspapers giving different views all the time. It's just simply an impossibility. But on the other hand, it all stokes up news, the, whether true or not, the moment. The palace respond to it, and that's why the tried and trusted way of saying nothing is usually best, but couldn't be done, because there were charges of racism, or certainly perceived racism. And it's it's absolutely bizarre that uh, two years later, the Sussexes simply withdrew those charges, and the person of Harry uh, being interviewed on ITV, and said that it was unconscious bias it wasn't racist. The person who asked, we don't know who, um, Archie's skin color. But the trouble that that stirred up, and also, of course, the difficulties, there's no doubt Meghan had very considerable difficulties uh, and stresses uh, struggling to adapt to humor to uh, royal life. But the way that was handled by them, especially with the Duke of Edinburgh ill, even if they didn't know that he was going to be in hospital at the time the interview was scheduled, I was utterly ruthless. Unfortunately, uh, uh, historians can point out, or journalists can point out, that the Sussexes didn't marry twice or whatever, a whole series of inconsistencies. But this idea that there is such a thing as the truth and your truth, and that the latter, that both are acceptable, but they're not, is either the truth or not. And there's no doubt, I mean, Harry's Invictus Games, and that, of course, is uh, going on in Dusseldorf as we speak at this moment, uh, was, was a superb project. But he would never have got it off the ground in the way that he did if he had been a member of the royal family. And in the days when he did launch it, he was someone who believed in the institution. Now it's impossible to say what their views are when it comes to the royal family, other than the fact they want an apology. They're not going to get it. There is this rift. The rift still remains damaging. And also, there is... This has to be said. The Sussex brand is still very powerful. They may have lost Spotify. There may be questions about Netflix or not. uh, But nonetheless, the facts simply are that anything that happens, and this was the case of the um, near-catastrophic car um, chase in New York, or it was the case of Harry being in the witness box, the world's press for listening. So they can't be ignored.
1: No, they really, really can't.
0: So, Richard, I wanted to talk about the royal family and the way that they've been portrayed in film, television, and on the stage. And of course, their lives have been examined through the photography of the paparazzi. I'm wondering, do you think that these portrayals really do give us a window into their lives?
2: I think they give us a certain amount. Uh, fortunately, the paparazzi, who, in my opinion, are lower than vermin, uh, they've had a great deal less. Power since the death of the tragically pursued, of course, by Paparazzi, the Princess of Wales. There is no doubt about that. But the fascination with the royal family, you're absolutely right. I mean, if you take the crown, the crown ought to have a disclaimer. The crown is fictional, is fiction based on factual events. It should say that. It actually did say that. In the publicity for the last series but it doesn't say that in front of the various episodes and it should because it's a deliberately anti-royal tract it has turned into this peter morgan is clever he mixes Royalty and politics, and he does so with enormous skill. We saw this in the film The Queen. We saw this in the play The Audience. We saw it in Frost-Nixon. We saw it in The Deal about Gordon Brown and Tony Blair and their rivalry. And we've seen it here. There's no question whatsoever that the production values are impressive and that Claire Foy was marvelous as the queen, but subsequently with Olivia Coleman and Imelda Staunton, both of those were caricatures. They were cold, unfeeling figures, and unquestionably, the, the way that the character was written, you were supposed to see someone who was aloof and someone who in many ways, was uncaring, was deeply selfish. The Queen was none of those things. So in that sense, I think that the crown, when the last series, which is coming up supposedly to be released in November, when that has happened, I think the royal family will be relieved because uh, a younger generation who don't know um, Princess Diana or weren't alive when she was will only know her through the crown, Camilla, Queen Camilla, I think, will be to some extent concerned about the way she's portrayed because people do tend to believe a lot of what they see on screen. And the crown is expertly written by Peter Morgan, who has decided to put the knife into the royal family, which he has described as a virus.
0: Certainly, history can get a, a bit skewed by the way it's presented, certainly on the screen, as you say.
2: On the other hand, a positive depiction of a monarch on screen can make a great deal of difference to their image. I'm particularly thinking of Queen Victoria, who obviously linked with the era of the industrial revolution of exploitation and empire, and also a figure considered a sort of dumpy figure in black who was not amused and Puritan and so forth. I think that there's been a great change in the way that she is regarded. And one of the reasons was superb depictions of her by Dame Judy Dench, one of our top actresses. And this is the case in Mrs. Brown and also in Victoria and in Abdul. And I think that the interest in Victoria and the fact that she and Albert were one of the great uh, love affairs of, ro- of royalty, I mean, there's no doubt at all that the. Television series Victoria and the film Victoria and Album, all of that I think has changed. Queen Victoria's image to some extent, anyway, because the, when the Queen had the Diamond Jubilee, it well, commemorated it, and of course, Victoria was the only other monarch to do this. Um, in her case, she was frail. In the Queen's, fortunately, she was not. But there was enormous interest in Victoria and that period, and also the fact that, you know, she was lively. She was also. Um, she was deeply political, sometimes very naughty in the way she she pushed her, her political views and her fondness for Lord Melbourne was another issue that um, politicians at that in that period would have well Albert actually made Victoria a great deal more impartial, which is what she always should have been. But it was a very, very different era. And I think that the feeling that towards Victoria, that they altered, just as the feeling towards George III. He was known as Mad King George. Some knew him as Farmer George. Of course, Mm -hmm. Hamilton and the American colonies and the way the War of Independence and the fact that Britain lost, he's remembered for that. But from the human level, it took Alan Bennett's play, The Madness of King George, which examined the horrors of fighting Porphyria and the king, rather like Lear on the heath, it's, uh, it's terrifyingly lonely. And Nigel Hawthorne inhabited the role with such brilliance. And I think that also has helped people understand what that king went through uh, more above and beyond what people knew already. On the other side, of course, it's a fair point that Edward VIII and Edward and Mrs. Simpson in, in the 1970s, when Edward Fox played um, played Edward VIII, there is no question that his reputation from being thought of as the king who gave up everything for love, he's now known as someone who was totally unsuitable for the job, desperately selfish. Pro-Nazi, to what extent is still debated, and uh, there's no doubt that uh, the way he's been portrayed on screen, especially in that series, and also most recently in the King's Speech, which gave a, a very human flavour to Colin Firth's uh, portrayal mm-hmm. of George VI, you could see how he fought his stammer and you know the sacrifices required as a member of the royal family. But there's no doubt that the feelings towards Edward VIII have changed. And, of course, the Queen and her dilemma as a grandmother when Diana died, that was examined in The um, in in the Queen, played yes. by Helen Mirren, and that that worked well and had a huge audience and holds up well. I've recently re-seen it.
0: Yes, well, it's certainly, as you say, the angle of the portrayal certainly has, has influenced I wanted to circle back a little bit, actually, to you and your history and your accomplishments. Now, you were the editor of the international Who's Who for over 25 years. With this intrinsic knowledge of the world's most notable, do you think our fascination with royalty and specifically the British royal family will wax or wane over the coming decades?
2: I think that the only answer that one can give, uh, and I mean, looking back over the the decades, it's increased with social media to degrees that even then I would have thought pretty impossible. Um, I think that it's become almost, it's become obsessive. I mean, there is no question with Twitter, Facebook, and all the other aspects of, of life today, and that people, in fact learn of news so quickly, when I think of compiling internationalists who have the problems of getting information in those days against the way it's so easily available now, I mean, it's a completely different world. And in the changing world, one of the things that doesn't seem to have changed is a fascination which has been evident over the years with the monarchy. Indeed, the monarchy goes back over a thousand years in Britain. The one gap was the Civil War uh, with the execution of Charles I to the end of the protectorate in 1660 when Cromwell died. And the people, sick of Puritan rule, welcomed Charles II back. And there's no doubt whatsoever that Intrinsically, I think Britain is a monarchist country. I think it's very possible that out of the 14 other members of the Commonwealth that are um, realms that regard King Charles as their head of state, it's very probable, I think, that some will become republics. Although, interestingly, Barbados, which recently became a republic, didn't have a referendum. So there's always that, remembering what happened in 1999 in Australia. But my own feeling is that the fascination, the almost obsessive fascination in the monarchy with monarchy, and with the British monarchy particularly, is here to say.
0: Yes. I do agree with you on that as well. Richard, we want to thank you so much for chatting with us today. It was a pleasure speaking with you. If you'd like to learn more about Richard, you can follow him on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter or visit his website at www.richardfitzwilliams.com. Thanks so much, Richard.
2: It's been a great pleasure, and I've so enjoyed it.
0: Thank
1: you, Richard. We have, too. Cheers. They live in a fishbowl. Whether you love them or hate them, Harry and Meghan, they've made this pretty clear, right, that they don't like this. Right. And I'm fairly certain I would not enjoy the paparazzi always having to be forced into the public eye, You might be surprised to hear this, Walker, but I'm not always the chipper, sunny self you see today.
0: (laughs) No, I'm shocked, Harris. And the media is relentless, Mm -hmm. whether royals celebrating or grieving too. Everyone wants a glimpse into their lives. Yeah, it would be so hard to ever completely
1: hide from the public. It's important to note too that most members of a royal family are born into the lifestyle. They don't choose it. And in fact, many have chosen to opt out. What do the Brits call it? Like the firm or the family business or something like that? It's a job, being always in the public eye, attending events, speaking engagements, and all of that.
0: Now, if you were born and raised a royal, you may have a better idea as to what being a royal is really like, what is expected of you. But if you marry into it, though, you may not be entirely prepared until you actually are immersed in it. Perhaps not, though. I think you would
1: have a pretty good idea. It would be more than marrying just one person. You would have to acknowledge that, right? for sure. You're marrying a tradition and making a lifelong commitment to uphold it. So there are all kinds of rules and regulations that you would have to learn marrying into a royal family. Like, were you aware that the British
0: royal family can't sign autographs? I've never thought about it, actually, but I guess there is potential risk for someone to fraudulently use their signature, perhaps? Yeah, you got it. Apparently,
1: though, in 2010, King Charles did break this rule when he gave an autograph to a couple who had been affected by the floods in Cornwall. Mm. And it was just this piece of paper signed Charles 2010. Interesting. I bet that's worth a pretty penny now. I would imagine.
0: And did you also know that royals are not supposed to eat seafood? I did know this. It's because of the notion that there's a greater chance of getting food poisoning, correct? Yeah, but I'm not sure I could uphold that rule. Oh, I bet you this gets broken. I bet you it does too.
1: I wonder just how much of their lives is governed by such rules. It seems like that one would be a pretty easy one to break, Mm -hmm. don't you think? But airs flying together, that's a no-no. King Charles and Prince William cannot fly together, and even little Prince George, he won't be able to fly with his dad when he turns 12. Wow, strict. Yeah, but these rules are developed with the intention of keeping the royal family safe, but it is so restrictive. They're even restricted in what they wear, right? Yeah, definitely. The last thing you want to do as a member of the royal family is to dress outlandishly, Mm -hmm. only to be attacked in the papers. Take, for example, Fergie, Sarah Ferguson, the Duchess of York. She had a really hard time with this. She was even dubbed the worst dresser of all time in the show Secrets of the Royal Dressmakers.
0: (laughs) Isn't that a horrible thing to say? say? That's terrible.
1: Rude. The public is so cruel. Did you know that members of the royal family have to travel with a black outfit in case someone dies in their family? Wow. A sad preemptive preparation, indeed. Mm -hmm. And according to CBS, members of the British royal family are also discouraged from wearing black publicly otherwise. That would be like my entire wardrobe. (laughs) I would be the naked royal family member.
0: Somebody asked me once whether I was in mourning. This is years ago because I had worn black. I think it was three weeks in a row, solid without a break. Clearly, we would
1: not function very well within the royal family rules. And I certainly never remember Queen Elizabeth in anything but fresh and bright know, springy so colors, true. right? She always looks so lovely, but very practical, too, for the most part. She even had weights sewn into the hemlines in order to avoid any uplifting breezes, because that would be a fashion disaster if any royal knickers were on display. <laughs>
0: well, isn't that clever? Uh, I know. I, she I never was, thought
1: of that. She was definitely clever and much more. In upholding the monarchy, she was particularly interested in observing and keeping tradition. In fact, there were very few times that she broke tradition, but when she did, it was meaningful, like serving in the armed forces and learning how to fix truck engines. Though, of course, the queen didn't need a driver's license or anything like that, or a passport, apparently. Well, I suppose
0: everyone knows who she was around the world. She was a legend. She was a legend. She served a long time. I wish I had met her. I actually saw her and Prince Philip once
1: leaving Westminster Abbey on my very first visit to England. No way. Yep. In fact, we had just landed and I heard on the radio in the taxi going into London that they were attending the services that day. Okay. So we diverted our taxi and drove to the back of the church and there they were getting into their big Rolls Royce and uh, I was super starstruck. But if I had met her formally, I think I would have had to have been aware of protocol.
0: Right. No hugging and kissing and don't touch the queen unless she initiates it. Mm -hmm. At the G2 Summit in 2009, former First Lady Michelle
1: Obama famously broke this rule and hugged her.
0: Ah, another queen in her own right. You
1: got that right. But here's an odd tradition. According to a CBS article, each member of the royal family is required to weigh in (laughs) before and after Christmas dinner. (laughs) I shouldn't be laughing. Come on, that's awful. I know. I don't think I would go. (laughs) This tradition supposedly goes back to Edward VII in the early 1900s, it was implemented to ensure that the guests were fed." Well, I guess the king didn't want complaints the next
0: day that there wasn't enough food to go around. I know. Can you imagine at the royal table? (laughs) I can't think that that happens very often. And then there is, of course, the traditions embedded in royal weddings. According to the History Channel, the Royal Marriage Act of 1772 requires royals to request permission from the monarch to marry. And of course, a monarch has a power of veto. Right. This act is rooted in George III's disapproval of his brother's marriage to Anne Horton, a common. Queen Elizabeth vetoed her sister's request, too, to marry a commoner and divorcee, but in 2013, another act was passed allowing for royals who are not in the first six in line for succession to not require permission. Yeah, that's actually quite sad.
1: Not being able to marry who you want. On a happier note, did you know that royal brides regularly carry myrtle for good luck in marriage in their wedding bouquets? This dates from the reign of Queen Victoria.
0: I did know this. And Kate Middleton had Myrtle in her bouquet as well, no? Yes, I think she did.
1: Can you imagine the gifts that they must have received? (laughs) But of course, there are some serious rules. Can't have gifts without rules, Walker. And there are serious rules around gift giving and receiving too. I wonder, did we talk about this during our episode, The Present Protocols? I can't remember, Harris. So what are the royal rules? Well, there are supposedly people from whom they cannot receive gifts, as well as gifts that they may or may not accept depending on the monetary value.
0: Okay, this is new to me.
1: Yeah, and of course, all the gifts that are received are recorded, but this shouldn't be a surprise. I did this at all my kids' birthday parties.
0: (laughs) To write thank you notes. Exactly.
1: In fact, a full list of all the gifts that the palace received in each year is released. Some of these gifts have included Automatic rifles. Yeah, I can just see the queen with one of those. (laughs) A PhD thesis, bedtime reading, and multiple boxes of mangoes and Brazilian
0: sloths. Automatic rifles. Yeesh. And I bet this is just the tip of the iceberg. I bet you're right. I might not have this right, but I think I heard that all members of the family must follow the lead of the monarch, including only going to bed after the monarch goes to bed and beginning to eat after he or she has started their meal. Oh, man. What if I were stuck with a night owl monarch? (laughs) I like getting into bed early walker. (laughs) I know, Harris. Also, while dining, guests and family at the table are not supposed to talk to anyone other than those sitting next to them. Actually, I
1: like this rule. I went out for a big family hoop-de-doo last night. Okay. And there were 11 of us at the table. And if you're not just talking to the people beside you, it gets really noisy and unruly. But I also heard that if a royal family member is talking to a guest beside them, they're not supposed to trespass into the political realm.
0: Ah, they have to be neutral.
1: Yeah, essentially Switzerland. And according to the website for the parliament, it is considered
0: unconstitutional for the monarch to vote in an election. Oh, that makes sense. The monarch is meant to be unbiased. Well, the British royal family is not the only royal family in the world today. There are many others. I think I know of a few. Yeah, according to Avery Coop, author of Mapped, which countries still have monarchies, as of 2022, there were 43 countries who were still ruled by monarchies. Forty-three. Wow, that is much more than I thought. Well, these monarchies have various degrees of power, but most acquired their power by their birthright, like the British royal family. Well, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. There's the absolute monarchy, where the monarchy possesses full and absolute political power. This is, for instance, think Saudi Arabia or Vatican City. Right. But 70% of all monarchies are constitutional monarchies. This is the British monarchy that we know. The country is led by a democratically elected government, and the monarch performs primarily ceremonial activities. They might not be able to influence laws, but monarchs might be required to sign bills to make them into a law. There is also the federal monarchy, where the monarch remains a figurehead but has little else to do. And finally, there is the fixed monarchy. This is similar to the absolute monarchy, but the monarch may distribute powers within a given country in various ways.
1: I feel like there's been a great deal of change in attitude towards the relevance yes. of the monarchy since we were young, hasn't there been?
0: I think so, particularly from the time of Charles and Diana. Mm-hmm. People are less willing to shoulder the cause of their extravagant living. And as our society becomes more casual and less tradition bound, there's less understanding of the rigid ceremonies, rules, and traditions of monarchy. Right. Take, for example, King Maha Vajira Longkorn of Thailand.
1: His estimated net worth is. billion. And then there's, of course, the Sultan of Brunei, who, after Queen Elizabeth, is the world's longest reigning monarch, he has a fleet of over 600 Rolls Royces. 600. Wow. How are you going to use all those cars? I just want to know. But can you imagine the good that could be done in the
0: world with all that money?
1: Yeah, exactly. And this is what people have a problem with. Other wealthy monarchs can be found in Saudi Arabia, UAE, Qatar, Morocco, Luxembourg, Liechtenstein, and of course, Monaco. I think I mentioned seeing one of these family super yachts in Barcelona in one of our past episodes. Uh, Just crazy wealth people chafe against the growing of that very visible gap between the haves and the have-nots. The British royal family, interestingly enough, don't make the top 10 richest monarchies, which might be Mm. to many people's surprise. Much of the royal family's expenses are covered by the Sovereign Grant, which is a taxpayer-funded grant, In 2021, 2022, this amount was about 86.3 million pounds or about $1.61 per person in the UK. Mm -hmm. And boy, do they have expenses. There are a lot of support staff and systems required to be in place to keep the royal family, their palaces and possessions in good nick. In fact, it's estimated that they need about a thousand staff. Whoa. Yeah. Not a small team. That's for sure. That's almost the same number of employees as the Build-A-Bear Empire Walker. Did your kids ever build a bear walker? No, it's still on my list of things to do. Get out. My kids did. It's actually a really cute idea, but anyway, I'm... I digress.
0: I'm sure there are positions in the royal household that don't even
1: exist in the outside world. You're on to something there, Walker. Lindsay Dodgson outlines a list of these positions in her article, 15 Weird and Wonderful Jobs You Can Get Working for the Royal Family. Oh, I love this kind of stuff. I know, me too. Some of these are paid, but some of these positions are purely honorary. Not paid. Right. Or very, very little. Okay, for those who might be interested in working for Britain's royal family in an honorary or paid position, there are plenty of options available. Here are just a few. My favorite, I think, is if you like horses, the royal family requires a master of horse, and this is an honorary position. The responsibilities include inspecting the royal stables and attending all ceremonial events where the monarch is on a horse or Mm. in a carriage. But if horses aren't your thing and you have more of a scientific bent, there's always the astronomer royal, again, a predominantly honorary position, And this role requires you to serve as the go-to person for any scientific-related questions. I would definitely not make the short
0: list for this position.
1: Nor I. (laughs) And then there is a fairly recently created role, the flag sergeant. Mm. This role came to being during Queen Elizabeth's reign after Princess Diana had died. The public was outraged that the royal standard had not been lowered to half-mast. So the flag sergeant lowers and raises the flag depending on whether someone has died, as well as whether the monarch is or isn't at... Buckingham Palace. I see. Any
0: other unique jobs there? Anything I could do? Well, when the Queen was alive, one of her staff was responsible for breaking her shoes in. Seriously? What size were her feet? Six. I think that'll work for you, right, Walker? Yeah, that actually might work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe. I guess she was on her feet for extended periods of time. Yeah.
1: And I've got one more for you that you might like. Okay. There is a royal horologist on staff who Hmm. winds the clocks and maintains the barometers and thermometers at the royal residences. There are over 1,000 pieces which require winding, proper maintenance, and repairing parts. Who would have thought... I don't have one timepiece anymore that needs winding. I know, me neither. But working for a royal family may not be all that it is cracked up to be. There have been many reports of poorly treated staff by some royals. Just last year, a Saudi princess ended up in a Florida jail for allegedly hitting her maid and pushing her down the stairs. Badly behaved billionaires. Yeah, you got that right. As different as the royal family and their lives might be to ours, royal deaths around the world have also been often quirky or unusual. Like? Well, Adolf Frederick, who was the king of Sweden, passed away of heart failure or poisoning after overeating. No. I know. I should have read this story yesterday because <laughs> I, had, I was really in danger of this last night. He's known as the king who ate himself to death. In addition to a dinner of lobster, caviar, and sauerkraut, yuck, that combination <laughs> is just yuck, he ate 14 semlas in hot milk. A semla is a type of Nordic sweet bun, and a sweet bun overdose may not be the worst way to
0: go. What do you think? Maybe not, but that is not good when your luxurious lifestyle brings about your own demise. I know, right? But this might not be so bad
1: either. George Plantagenet, the Duke of Clarence, had been charged with high treason and imprisoned in the Tower of London and ultimately ordered to be executed by his brother. There is a story that he was drowned in a butt of Malmsey wine, a butt being 477 liters. But that might be a bit of an urban myth. Maybe a reference to his love of the drink, or perhaps his executed body was transported in a barrel of wine. Yikes. I know. Though, if you're a wine lover, it might not be so bad. (laughs) In case you were wondering what Malmsey wine is like, it's rich and sweet. Think molasses, caramel, raisins, and nuts. And maybe some vanilla notes. <laughs> a very rich and luxurious accent for exactly, sure. Exactly, exactly. And something a little different, Louis Third, the king of France, died in pursuit of beauty. At the age of 17, Louis died as a result of a fractured skull he incurred while chasing a girl in the street while on horseback. The girl apparently fled to her father's house in search of safety, and Louis subsequently struck his head on the door lintel. I read that he is one of two French kings who died as a result of banging their heads on a door lintel. This is starting to bring to mind the seven deadly sins. (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) And finally, there's the king of Hungary, Bella I, who died as a result of the injuries he suffered when his throne collapsed. Taking work to the grave. One might live like a king, but it's a pretty level playing field when it comes to how we die. Thank you for joining us at At Home and Abroad with your host, Harrison Walker. If you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate it. If you would rate and review our show, it helps us grow and expand our reach. Subscribe to follow us each week as we continue the conversation. You can say hi to us on Instagram at @harrisonwalker. Harrison Walker. We
0: would love to hear from you.